Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 10. This is God's word and it is is eternally true. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him, and a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. On the next day he got up, and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. 
That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to, the wit- to, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. We're working our way through the book of Acts. This is a big chapter, um, not only in its length, um, but also in its significance to the progress and development of what God was doing and revealing by His Spirit in the world at that time and continues to do through His church um, in the world. I want at the, at the heart of this passage is a question, and I just want to put it out there and have it on our minds as we work through it, and that question is this, who's welcome to God? Is there a category of person who God's not interested in or has no right to approach him, has no access, no promises made to them in the word? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Is there anybody in this room 
who could not turn to God and find God favorable to them. Is there anybody closed off that is barred, that the way is barred, that God just has them, they're in a category, I take no interest in them. Functionally in your life, you know how you have ways of, uh, you know, you have the right answers, you know the theological answer, but then you have the functional answer, (laughs) the way you actually think deep down. I just want you to stop and think about this question of how you actually perceive the world, how you actually live, and how you actually relate to your neighbors and friends and coworkers. Is there anybody in your life that as you wake up today and you take stock of things, you just think, that person, there is no way that God is interested in them. We don't really look at it that way. The way we say that is the other way around. There's no, that person will never take any interest in God. But why does anybody take interest in God? Because God calls them. Because God opens their eyes. Because God softens their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I ask you again, is there anybody in your life, Christian, that you just think in your, in your mind, in your perception of them, there is no way. They just are in a category of person that's just... None of the things we talk about and believe here has anything to do with them. I mean, the, the, gap, the gap is so vast. You know, the learning curve is so steep. I can't imagine it. You know, their heart is so hard or whatever. There's a lot of firsts and a lot of key developments in the book of Acts, but this right here in chapter 10 is one of the big ones. I know it just seems like a neat story, but underneath it, there's a lot of really significant changes taking place, significant work being done and announced by the Holy Spirit. Before we get into the text, I want to just take a little time to kind of open up some of the things that are going on under the surface here big picture. This is, there's like a, some nerve centers in the Bible, and you sort of touch it, and you end up touching in everything. You find it's interconnected to everything, and it's almost hard to know what not to talk about in understanding the significance of certain events in the Bible. This is one of those moments in the Bible, it's like a nerve center. By coming to it and trying to look at it, we're actually talking about things that are interconnected throughout all the scriptures so forgive me, it's, it's, hard. it's been hard for me to know where to begin, where to end. <laughs> Hopefully we will end at some point today. <clears throat> this is a really big moment in Scripture. This little interaction at Cornelius' house in a little place called Caesarea. The Holy Spirit is revealing something. What he's revealing is as the gospel goes out, He is not only willing to include the Gentiles in the covenant and his among his people and to count them among his people, he's also revealing how he's willing to do that. And it's unsettling and it's radical. From the perspective of the Jews and the Jewish Christians, even though they've heard the announcement of the Great Commission, even though Jesus has laid out the expanding mission for them for the whole book of Acts, and even through today, into the ends of the world, even though they've started to see some some surprising uh, responses to the gospel message in Samaria, the Ethiopian eunuch, there's been some indications of where things are headed. Even still, the apostles, the apostle Peter, wakes up one morning 
And he could never have imagined what was about to happen. He just, you could, he would never have guessed it. And that's just so clear from his response. And I wonder if there are people in our lives or things that we can think of where we wake up one day and we think we just, we could never have imagined that so-and-so is going to repent. God is going to extend his mercy to that far. I just had never guessed it. I was thinking about the fall of the Berlin Wall because a wall is an image that scripture uses for what's happening here. There's a wall that God has put in place to divide his people, Israel, and it's a long-standing wall. A wall that he put in place, a wall of rules and regulations and commands, practical commands that affect the way his people lived, a wall that was set up, formed of commands and instructions and regulations for their way of life, that Partition them off from everybody else in the world. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. There's this little people, the Jews. And God has marked them off as belonging uniquely to him. They are his people. They are peculiar. They are set apart as holy and belonging to him. And the way they're marked, he wants them to be holy in their hearts. He wants them to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. But on the outside, there are also these commands and regulations, these external uh, ceremonies that they are to keep and to follow that visibly mark them out and partition them off from other people, okay? These are what's called the ceremonies of the Old Testament law. And they're like a wall. They affect how Jews cut their hair. They affect how God's people, the Jews, who they marry. These laws and rules and regulations affect, very significantly to this passage, what they eat and what they can't eat. And you can know from experience, and you can easily imagine how, if you're restricted from eating certain foods, certain meats, how difficult it would be to relate normally and openly with other people who eat anything or whatever. This is one of the ways, these these restrictions and dietary laws in the Old Covenant, there's a long list of restricted foods, restricted meats that God had put in place for his people Israel. They were commanded not to eat certain things. And this practically, functionally, partitioned them off from free intercourse and relationship and association with other nations and other peoples. And all of that right here was going away. It, had, it was going away. These aspects of God's law had become, in the, na- in, the, in the words of the author of Hebrews, in New Testament language, had become obsolete. They had served their purpose for a time of preparation for the coming of the Messiah, but he had come. He had done his work and he ushered in a time of fulfillment and a new covenant enacted on better promises with a wider scope and reach to the ends of the earth. And this old partition wall, that's what the Apostle Paul calls it, a barrier, 
a wall of enmity and opposition between peoples had no more usefulness to God. He put it up and he was tearing it down. And so the image I had for this was like the detonator charge had been put in that wall by the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then over the course of these nine chapters of Acts up to this point, it's like the wires being <laughs> rolled out to the detonator. <laughs> and right here in Cornelius' living room, in front of a small audience of close friends and family of this Gentile soldier, the Holy Spirit's going to press the lever down and the wall's going to go kablooey. And even after it happens, and even though Peter's going to understand what it means and the significance of this and what the Holy Spirit's indicating and showing, and he's, he, he's going to see, I see it, I understand, there's still going to be a lot of questions left because this wall is so long-standing and so significant and is so deeply impressed in the mindset of God's people Israel, even the Christians, <laughs> that they're going to have a lot of difficulty understanding the implications of what the Holy Spirit just does, and there's going to be a lot of fighting about it and a lot of tensions still to resolve. And the Apostle Paul, he's going to understand it better than anybody else because he's got this piercing mind. He even acknowledges in his letters that I've been given special insight into these things. And he's going to write more about it because he's very theological and he's a teacher. He's going to teach the church, and he's going to help work out the implications of these events right here for the way we structure the church, the way we live together, the way we go on mission, what we're about in the new covenant age. He's going to work it out. But right now, Paul's just a, recently, a recent convert, a newly minted apostle, and he doesn't have standing in the church, and he still needs years to think about this and reflect on it and to study the scriptures and pray and have revelations from God so that he can understand how to lead the people into the future. The only person that has the standing needed to oversee this event and to help reassure everybody that it is God's blessing and God's work is Peter. And last we left Peter, he was, God had brought him to Joppa called him there and he had told him or and he and he was sitting he was staying at a at a tanner's house named Simon by the sea and here we have a new call for Peter to come someplace else to go to a very unexpected Peter wakes up one morning he would never have guessed where the Holy Spirit was sending him now and that's to a Gentile's house and probably over the course of the several days that he stays with them, eating Gentile food. Couldn't have seen that coming. You could say he should have seen it coming. It's implied in the Great Commission and all of these other things, but these are just such radical changes that we can't really fault these men for slowly waking up to these realities. And God was showing them and revealing more and more to them as they go along. Well, let's look at this passage together. In verse 1 of chapter 10, we're introduced to Cornelius, a, a Gentile, and he's a soldier. He's a part of what's called the Italian cohort, 
And that means uh, he's, uh, he's a centurion. He's a, one of the captains in this, um, in this cohort. And since he's, a, since he's like a captain as a centurion and, and a leader, it probably means he's an Italian, a native of, of Rome and a, and a Roman citizen. And he's stationed here for a period of his life, we don't know how long, in Caesarea in Palestine. And we're told about him religiously. We're told that he's a deeply religious man. He has, he's a devout man. That means he's got a man of deep religious feeling and commitment. He's one who feared God. This is not the pantheon of gods. He's not a pagan. Isn't that interesting? He's a Gentile, but he fears God. He's a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and he has embraced that faith, the the faith of Abraham, as far as he can while remaining still a Gentile, coming just short of being circumcised and embracing the whole system and all its rules and regulations. But yet he fears God, the true God, Yahweh. He's a leader spiritually in his home. He fears God with all his household. And so he's not, this is not a personal, private, secret thing for Cornelius. He is bringing other people under his care and responsibility along with him in his faith. His faith in God expresses itself in deeds of charity and mercy to God's people. He has given many alms, it says in verse 2, to the Jewish people. And he's also a man of prayer. He prayed to God continually. So while Cornelius is a Gentile and outside the covenant people of Israel, he is not a pagan. He, has, he, has, he devotes himself to the worship and honor of Yahweh insofar as he can. And he gives generously to God's people. His heart is for God's people and for their support and relief and help. This was not an uncommon thing in, the, in scriptural times. There's a category of person that we read about in the New Testament called a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a Gentile, kind of on the margins or the periphery of God's people, that had taken an interest in the message, this unique message of one God who made all things. That's a, that's a pretty radical and unique thing and, and belief in those days. Because what all the pagans celebrated and, and, and worshipped was a pantheon, a multitude of gods. Here was a group of people who upheld the idea of one God, creator of all things. And there were Gentiles who found that compelling. Cornelius was one. They were called God-fearers. They, were, they supported Israel. Their sympathies were for Israel. They could not bring themselves for whatever reason. You can imagine the pressures. If you're, gonna, if you're a Roman soldier stationed in Palestine, you're basically facing giving up everything to become a Jew, to become numbers among God's people, to embrace these, this 
one God fully to be circumcised, to embrace these, diff- these uh, dietary laws and restrictions and all of the other rules and regulations that were part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. You're basically facing giving up everything you know, all your people, all your career, and going into something. And some people did. Those were called proselytes. Men like Cornelius were sort of right on the edge, going as far as they could. Their heart was for Yahweh, genuinely. And I mean, this is a man of genuine faith. Nobody's, nobody lives this way, especially devotes themselves to prayer like this, than a man who loves the Lord genuinely from his heart, but had not gone so far as to join himself fully through circumcision to God's people. Cornelius is a God-fearer. Calvin, John Calvin, in his comments on this passage, says Cornelius was regenerate. He was a true, born-again, believing follower of God. And, And this is without being instructed in the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And he argues that this must be the case from the evidence of faith that we see in Cornelius' life. No, no one except a man of faith bears such fruit, says Calvin. And I think I agree. I had not thought of it before, but I think I agree. God had already smiled on this man, had called him to himself. And Cornelius, his faith was sufficient for his situation and his time, and yet he lacked the full revelation and understanding of Jesus Christ and his ministry and work, and, but he awaited only the, the opportunity to hear about it. And so the commentators, after making that point, you know what they say next? The good ones? They say, shame on us. Here's a man who made so much of so little. You know, his, he's still living in the shadows of understanding and teaching. But he's making good use of everything God has revealed to him, everything he's heard. Maybe he's been allowed to go to synagogue and to worship with God's people and hear the scriptures and hear the teaching. Whatever he understands, he's making good use of in his life. And here we are, enjoying the full revelation of Jesus Christ with the completed scriptures Each of us with multiple personal copies in our homes, more than likely, not going half as far. And so let's look to Cornelius. I want to be more like Cornelius in my life. I want to be a man who's serious and devout. And not only taking my own soul seriously, but clearly throughout this passage, we see Cornelius taking responsibility for others. And it's just beautiful. Just beautiful. John Calvin and Matthew Henry, those are good go-to commentators on Scripture. Both of them make the point that he's all these things and a military man. And to do this, to be honorable and upright in the military is especially hard. Because often you're alone with men. And you don't have the, uh, the, uh, what's the word? The the taming influence of women around. A lot of temptations in the military. And at this time, there was a lot of corruption. It was very easy to be a corrupt man 
and to take bribes from people because of your position of power. He's, this is not Cornelius. He's an upright man devoted to God. Cornelius is visited by an angel in verse 3. It says in the ninth hour of the day, the Jews had a habit of dividing up the day into the daylight hours into 12 hours. As they, as they told time, this is their system. The, the, the ninth hour of the day then would be in the middle of the afternoon, probably around 3 p.m. So this, this angel appears to him in, in, the, in the daytime. And that's a, a detail I think that's pointed out to us so that, we, and so that the readers will understand this wasn't some like dream in the night that you could write off as I ate cheese before bed and who knows what's going to happen, you know, in my sleep. I had some crazy dreams last night. This wasn't that. In the broad daylight, a divine being, an angel, comes and appears before him and he says, Cornelius. And Cornelius is aware that he's in the presence of some angelic being and he's fearful and startled. And he says, what is it, Lord? The angel tells Cornelius that God has heard his prayers and he's seen his works. They've come up to him. And he has a message that he wants Cornelius to hear. Go send some people to Joppa, to a very specific place, and ask for a very specific man by name and have him come and speak to you. You need to hear. This is very interesting. You've, you've heard over the years, Pastor Tim uh, make the point, John Calvin makes it all the time in his writings, that God could have sent angels to, to, to preach the truth, and they would do a lot better job than me, trust me. <laughs> they know what they're about. They don't have the weaknesses and the insecurities and the difficulties to overcome that, that men do. They don't have the sins that make you despise them like men do. That's not who God appointed to tell, to preach the truth about Jesus Christ. And this angel respects that. Isn't that interesting? He knows what's going on. He knows Jesus Christ. He understands it all. He's seen it played out. He's heard it preached. He knows he sins in God's presence. He knows what's going on. And he doesn't say anything about it. He just says, go get Peter. He will tell you a message. So he dispatches men. He has a couple of servants and one of his devout soldiers. There's an indication of Cornelius taking responsibility for others and bringing them along in his faith. He has devout subordinates, undoubtedly who he has influenced. He tells them everything that he has seen. He's not this distant leader. He explains it all to them and he says, please go quickly and get this man, Peter, for us. Meanwhile, in Joppa. Peter is in prayer. He's gone up on the housetop to pray here at the sixth hour of the day, which is lunchtime. And he's feeling it. He starts to get hungry while he's up there meditating and praying. And just at that time, as he's waiting for his, his lunch to be prepared for him, he has a vision. He's, he falls into a trance and he sees things seems like Cornelius sees an actual angel. Peter has like a trance. He has a, a wild vision while he's up there on the roof praying. And that vision includes this great sheet 
four-cornered sheet coming down from the sky, and in it are all kinds of animals. Mammals, reptiles, creeping things, birds of the sky, all just piled in there and, and on top of one another and intermingled. And, P, and there's a voice that says, you're hungry, Peter? Get up, kill and eat. And Peter's response is a response of horror. Why would it be a response of horror? Well, these dietary laws that God had put in place. And all his life, Peter has kept himself faithful to those laws because that's important to honoring God and being a faithful part of his covenant community, his people, and being set apart from the nations. These are important to God's people and important to Peter. And he can't imagine that God would ever command him to do something contrary to his word. What does he say? By no means, Lord. Verse, what is this? Is this verse 12? By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. But Peter hears a second word spoken, and that, and God, again from God, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. That cycle, back and forth, is repeated three times in the vision, and then the sheet goes back up into heaven. What on earth? <laughs> What a, that's where Peter's left. He's like very perplexed and he's trying to figure out what is this about? It's repeated three times. So it's like, it's emphasized and it's, it's like, this is, this is a real message. That's what I think the repetition is there to impress upon Peter. This is a real message. Pay attention to this. This isn't just, you know, I eat something wrong. I got a migraine. This is a real message from God, and he's perplexed trying to figure it out. And just at that moment, God is orchestrating all of this, and he's using all of, his, all of these facts to confirm for Peter and Cornelius and everybody that this is the Lord's doing. Just at that moment, men, the party from Caesarea arrives, and they're looking for a man named Peter. They've, is he here? Is there a man named Peter staying here? And God says, they're down there looking for you. Go down to them. And without any misgivings, go along with them. Why does he say without misgivings? They're Gentiles. Peter would naturally have misgivings about this if God were not involved in giving him direction. So this is something God is doing. He's tearing down his own wall, which is his prerogative to do. Let's talk for a moment about these food laws. Why were they put in place? Remember why I said they were put in place? They were put in place to help visibly separate and make a division and a distinction between groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. God had put them in place for that reason. These were not moral commands. So there, let's, God has, in his Old Testament law, different types of law. The moral commands of God are not going away. 
They are not part of this wall that is being removed by the Spirit of God. They represent God's unchanging, holy character, and they're absolutely as relevant today as they have ever been. And God takes his character seriously, and he hates sin. This is something different. These laws and regulations regarding food, and even though it uses words and concepts like holy and unholy, clean and unclean, we're talking about holy and uncleanness or cleanness and uncleanness on a different scale, a ceremonial scale. And God is removing these things. They've been enforced for a time and they had their purpose, but now that purpose is over. There's some really interesting theories about the rationale God had used for why certain animals were, he considered them clean or unclean. I don't think it's just arbitrary, but I don't know exactly what to tell you about how he made those distinctions. It's, a, it's pretty interesting, and some of the theories seem compelling, but I couldn't quite understand them. It's complicated, okay? But I wanted to make something really clear. I grew up with this my whole life. It has nothing to do with health. It's not a statement about what is healthy and unhealthy. That's not what the laws communicate. There are healthy or unhealthy things to eat, but that, you can't make sense of that from what the divisions that God makes, Okay. There's a lot of confusion still remaining in the church today about the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the, um, the abolition or the removal of the ceremonial law and what it means for us. It's that confusion, was, it was difficult to sort out then. It continues to have its difficulties for us today in our understanding. And one of these places that I think we're confused is we think that these food laws are statements about God, or from God, about what's healthy and not healthy. And so we end up then sort of having a moral superiority that if we follow these laws and practices in our lives, or we eat a little less pork than other people, or, you know, whatever, that we are somehow more righteous and holy. That is not the case. Food is a gift from God to bring us together. to bring people together in fellowship. That's one of the tremendous blessings of food and of shared meals, is it brings people together. That's God intended it to be that. And because he used it for a time to, to divide between his people Israel and other nations ceremonially and practically, it does not give us any justification for using it to divide ourselves and to parse our spirituality today. He has... He has abolished these rules. Does food still divide us today? (laughs) Food's difficult. Food is a blessing to bring people together, and we need to be very careful. You listening? 
We need to be very careful as Christians, especially as in the church, that we don't let our preferences, our tastes about food, and you ready for this? Even our dietary issues and needs separate us. Okay? It's very trendy, and there's a lot of uh, social cachet that you can trade on with fads about diets, problems with your belly and digestion that prevent you from eating this sort of thing, or statements that you've made about um, certain animals you won't eat, or classes of, of, of food that you won't touch because of this or that principle or whatever. That does not belong in the church. Now, I have a growing sympathy for people with gluten problems. I didn't have sympathy when I was younger, but I'm getting older and I understand. And I, that's a real issue. And it's difficult. I have a growing awareness and understanding of people who can't touch certain objects like peanuts without threatening their life. I understand that people don't like shrimp. I'm not one of them. I like shrimp. I know that some people can't have shrimp without threatening their life. These are realities, okay? The body's broken, marred by sin. We have problems. Even the things that God has blessed the world with causes problems because of our sin, okay? And the brokenness and the death that it results from it. All those things are realities. But can we not, can we not lead with them? Can we do while every, all that we can as believers to keep that as invisible as possible, okay? It's good to take concern and to do your best to know and accommodate the needs of people in your small group or in this church and you're having them over and being hospitable. I'm all for that. But please, let's not let this be any more complicating for us than it needs to be. Okay? And let's certainly not try to be parading our weaknesses, our, our preferences about food as righteousness over other people. Because God gave us food to unite us. Let's, as much as we can, let it do that work and be that kind of blessing, okay? Food laws in the Old Testament are not about health. They're about people. Isn't that interesting? They're about people. And that's one of the lessons Peter clearly learns and concludes that this is about people. It's about God visibly and practically sorting people into covenantal categories. Holy, unholy. Clean, unclean. In, out. Jew, Gentile. That's what these laws were about. These men arrive for Peter as he's mulling over the vision. The Holy Spirit tells him to go with him without misgivings, and he does. And they arrive the next day at Cornelius' house. What do they find there? Verse 24, they find there's an assemblage of people waiting for 
for them. Peter has thought, seen the wisdom, has some, God is clearly showing him what's going on. He's starting to, the lights are starting to come on throughout this whole episode. And one evidence of that is that Peter had the forethought to bring some witnesses with him from the circumcision, from the, from the brethren who were circumcised. He brought six of them. He clearly understands this, I'm going to need some backing <laughs> for whatever, wherever God's taking me here, I'm, I'm going out, um, I'm sticking my neck out here. <laughs> I want to make sure I've got some breadth, some backing, some support for whatever needs to be communicated about these events. Okay? He arrives there, and what do they find? They find a whole bunch of people waiting for them. So this is another beautiful example of Cornelius's being an includer and bringing people along. Matthew Henry says, whatever Cornelius thought was important to him or for him, he thought was important for others. Are you an includer? Is church, the ministry of the word, a guilty pleasure, a private pleasure for you? It wasn't for Cornelius. Whatever he thought was good for him and for his soul, he was eager to make sure other people were there benefiting from it too. He wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for his community for his family, for his fellow soldiers, for his co-workers, for his neighbors, and his friends. We need a bunch more includers. You remember the woman at the well? She encountered, she's an unex, there's an unexpected encounter between Jesus and a, and a Samaritan woman, and she's amazed that he's even, why are you even talking to me? He asks for water. Why are you even talking to me? And they end up having an enca- uh, this exchange. He talks about wells of living water coming up from the soul that cause you to never be thirsty again. And it winds up, they find their way to her sin. And he tells her all many things that she has done that he knows through his discerning spirit that she's guilty of. And how does she respond? How would, how would you respond? You've experienced this. Under the ministry of the word, your sins have been exposed to your conscience. You've understood yourself better and your guilt before God. How does she respond? How, how do you respond to that? By going out and inviting everybody in the community to come and hear it with you? That's what she did. She went back into the town and she started telling people, you've got to hear this man. He told me everything or many things that I ever did. He told me about my, he exposed my sins. You've got to hear this man. Well, Cornelius and the woman at the well, they're in it for others. And this is not private, personal pleasures or uh, guilty pleasures or private matters for them. Peter, he, he's so eager and excited about Peter coming that he falls on the ground and prostrates himself down before him and worships him. And Peter has to say, no, 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 no. Stop that. Get up on your feet. I'm just a man like you. Just a man like you. 
And they go into the house together, and Peter finds this assembly of Gentiles, and he gets right to work, and he gets right to the point, the salient point for Peter. And is it, what does he say? He's like, you yourselves know. What verse is that? Help me out. What is it? Thank you. In 28, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me. So he he acknowledges just the difficulty of being there. You guys know this is unheard of. This is uncouth. The word he uses for unlawful that's translated unlawful is more like, this this is, you know how profane it is. You know how contrary to our ways and to our religion it is for me to be here in such a company as this. Yet here I am, and God has, here's why I'm here. God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. What was the vision about? Animals, food, meat. What are the dietary laws about in the Old Testament? People. Isn't that interesting? And Peter understands. God is revealing it to him. And that those divisions, those ancient divisions that God had put in place and how he had kept them in place were no more relevant. I am no longer to make distinction. I should not call any man holy or, or an unholy or unclean. And that, friends is that that's why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius says, he rehearses his side of the story. Four days ago, I was praying, an angel comes to me, and he gave me specific instructions to seek you out in Joppa at a specific house by name and to have you come here and talk to us. So here we all are. Eager to hear what you have to say. You've been very kind to come. I like him as a host. He's very gracious. You've been very kind to come. And here we all are, ready to hear from you. And what does Peter, what does Peter say? He preaches a beautiful sermon of Jesus Christ. And he bases, he starts off with things that, that they, they know. These things that have happened in Jerusalem in these days... They were notorious. They were famous. And he assumes that they've heard about it. You've, you yourselves have heard what's taken place, starting with John. They've even heard about John the Baptist, and about Jesus, and how he healed people and ministered. And he did this with the, by the power of God. And he starts moving more into th- interpretations and the significance of those things for them. This is who he was. God has, he, he was raised from the dead And he appeared to us, not to everybody, to some people who he appointed to be his witnesses. And we even ate food with him. This is how certain we are that he's risen from the dead. We even have shared meals with him. And he's appointed us to go out and preach about him and tell everybody about who he is and what he's done. Namely, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. And now of all the scriptures of the Old Testament, 
how they point to him and speak of him. And here's what they say. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Do you believe that? Have you heard that message preached to you? Remember the first question I started with? Is there anybody that's not interesting to God, categorically? Is there anybody who God is not ready to look upon in mercy and favor? Is there any group of people or type of person or class of person Rich or poor, educated, uneducated, white or black, is there anybody that he is not willing to welcome? Well, it turns out that there is. There are people he is not willing to welcome. But it has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It has nothing to do with their educational background. It has nothing to do with how bad they are. Nothing. It has nothing to do with how ignorant they are of him and his ways. It has nothing to do with whether they were raised in a Christian home. It has nothing to do with whether they're in dire straits or they have a full bank account. It has nothing to do with that stuff. To this one I will look. To him who trembles at my word. To the one who fears me. The one who sees his sin and who looks to me for mercy. Wherever they are in the world, whatever their name is, whatever their skin color, whatever their height, whatever their beauty or ugliness, whatever their sin and how awful it is, if they humble themselves and fear me and seek me, they're welcome to me. And that's what Peter's waking up to. (laughs) And so beautiful. And it's... I just wonder if you believe it. I wonder if I believe it. I I think that there are all, all kinds of people that we just think, there's just no way, there's no use to having that conversation with them. Look what happens when Peter, he wakes up the the day before, he has no idea what's about to happen. And here he is in this company of this very uncomfortable setting, situation, speaking to people he would never have thought God had any interest in. And the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them through the ministry of his proclamation and word about Jesus Christ. They are given Joy in the Lord. They receive Jesus and the message of Jesus as that He is their Savior and that their sins are forgiven. And they just, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them in a confirming way that Peter and none of the witnesses with him can deny. God has blessed these people with faith. Is there anybody in your life, on your street, in your class, that you think, oh, that's useless? I'm not, I, 
They have no interest in God. There is no way. Their heart is so hard. They don't know the first thing. I don't know where to begin. God can't work in that person. Well, don't believe it. Here's all kinds of evidence in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul, Ananias, woke up a certain morning and he would never have thought he'd find himself that God would send him to the arch enemy of the people of God to make him an apostle. That's the grace and the magnanimity of God. His love is high and deep. His mercy is broad. And if you'll humble yourself and seek him, you're welcome to him. And what do you find? Forgiveness for your sins. Mercy. Peace in your mind and heart. Peace with God. You find a father in God who loves you and is kind and provides and works all things together the difficulties of our lives for good. And if you're here and you think, I, I'm not like these people. These people have it together. These people were raised in good homes. They know what the pastor's talking about. I don't, I don't, I don't understand the half of this. I, you know, this probably isn't for me. I'm sorry, I'm not communicating better. It is for you. You're welcome to God. All you have to do is humble yourself and seek Him. And Jesus, the mediator, will bring you to Him. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And the order, the normal order and pattern that's been in these early chapters of Acts that's been practiced up to this point is people believe and they're baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the apostles' hands. This becomes pretty clear in Samaria as a as the standard practice, the apostles are go around and they confer the blessing visibly of the giftedness of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of their hands in that sequence, in the order of belief, baptism, imparting of the Holy Spirit. And here it's reversed. And it's reversed by God as an added way of confirming these radical changes and the inclusion of the Gentiles as Gentiles. Forget Gentile, forget Jew. It doesn't have the same spiritual religious meaning anymore that it used to have. And that's a radical shift. And God's confirming it. One of the ways he's confirming it is just by pouring his blessings visibly, demonstrably, onto the gathered Gentiles there. They have their own Pentecost. And they are speaking in tongues and they're speaking the praises and the glory of God in foreign languages. And this leaves Peter and his witnesses in the position of just saying, well, Shucks. 
I, who can refuse them water of baptism? Clearly, they're like, they belong. And he orders them to be baptized. And they invite him to stay. And he stays. We assume he stays for some time and continues to minister to them and to teach them. Isn't that beautiful? How magnanimous, how broad, how wide, how charitable is God? He only has this one requirement that you be honest. And confess your guilt and your need of him. That's it. And he holds out his son as a savior. And he says, all you have to do, the work of God is this. That you believe on him whom he has sent. Please come and believe. And those who believe, please invite others, tell others, preach to others. If we're going to learn anything from Acts, it seems like it should be this, those of us who believe, God will use our words to bring people to him. Let's have faith for it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts and our understandings to understand the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of your love and mercy, and that we would not make judgments or hold prejudices in our hearts about who belongs to you or who you might be interested in, but that we would just see fields white and ready for harvest and that we would be generous in how we scatter the seed of your word, trusting that you will bless it and use it however you intend to and that people will come to know you because of what we say, what we profess, and how how we plead with them. Father, we want to be used of you in this way. Father, if there is anybody here who is needing you as a Savior, I pray that you would open up their mind and heart to understand what has been proclaimed today and to receive the grace and the mercy that you offer in the gospel and to trust in your Son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins and to be counted among your people, safe in your arms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.